My guest today is Professor Toby Walsh. Professor Toby Walsh is one of the world's leading researchers in the field of artificial intelligence. He is a professor of artificial intelligence at the University of New South Wales and leads a research group at Data61, Australia's Centre of Excellence for ICT Research. The title of his recent book is 2062, The World That AI Made. Professor Toby Walsh is with me on the phone from Sydney, Australia. Toby, thank you very much for taking my call and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Toby, before we begin our discussion on the topic of artificial intelligence, uh, please tell us about yourself, uh, about your education, about your research, uh, about your career. How did you get here? Uh, where you are now? <laughs> well, um, it goes back to being a young boy and, and reading too much science fiction. I, I loved authors like Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov and read about a future full of robots and intelligent computers and thought, well, well that sounds like an exciting future. Um, and um, I didn't have any imagination to do anything other than I, what I dreamt about as a young boy. Uh, but back then, it really was science fiction. And for many years, I don't think people took it that seriously. And so it's quite surprising now in the last couple of years that the rest of the world is catching up with these ideas and that science fiction is becoming science fact. And, and artificial intelligence, we've still got a long way to go before we can build machines as intelligent as us. But, but nevertheless, artificial intelligence is starting to have a, a significant impact on our lives. And you can't open a newspaper today without reading multiple stories of how AI is now uh, making new breakthroughs and, and able to do some new task that's uh, valuable in our lives. Toby, artificial intelligence uh, is not a new concept. In the early days of computers, uh, various researchers spoke about uh, machine intelligence, thinking machines and intelligent systems. But then for a long time, it was not widely discussed. However, a lot kept happening in the background. Now it seems everyone in computing science and related fields is talking about artificial intelligence again. Uh, why, uh, in your view, is this so? Yes, well, actually, actually, the history of AI goes, goes back even further, and Ireland's uh, intimately connected. I mean, George Ball, uh, the inventor of Boolean logic, the logic that uh, lies at the heart of uh, computers today, uh, did invent uh, that logic as a way of mechanizing thought. And so, in some sense, he is one of the people that contributed to the intellectual foundations um, that became AI. And then, of course, we have other great um, Anglo speakers like um, Alan Turing, who who wrote arguably the first paper about artificial intelligence, about the stream of building intelligent computers. Uh, but it's starting to have an impact today, uh, a combination of factors. Well, one is just that we've got faster computers. Moore's law has doubled the speed of computers every two years or so. And now things that I dreamt about even 10 years ago, we can now do. Uh, the second is we've also had a similar exponential increase in the amount of data, a lot of this being driven by ideas like machine learning, and that requires a lot of data, but we're collecting that data. And the third is that what well, we've been working on the problem for about 50 years, um, ever since the famous uh, Dartmouth Conference in 1956, which arguably kicked off the field, uh, and we're making progress, and there's been some, some significant advances, in particular, your listeners may have heard of things like deep learning, which has made a significant improvement in the in the quality of the algorithms that we've got, um, and those three things, and a lot more investment, having uh, again a, a doubling in the amount of money coming into the field every two years, uh, has put those things together. That has been a recipe for making some significant progress. But I should temper that with the caution that there's still a huge way to go to match human level intelligence. But we can now do narrow tasks, uh, whether that be playing the game of ancient Chinese game of Go or reading X-rays or or translating English into Mandarin, narrow tasks we can do now often at superhuman level, and that's having a significant impact on, on many businesses, many aspects of our lives. Let us uh, go into more details uh, and uh, let us discuss uh, what artificial intelligence can do for us uh, at present and what it cannot. 
But there's lots of things it can't do, and, and we've still got a huge distance to go before we match the full capability of the human brain. Uh, machines don't have any uh, emotional intelligence to speak of, any social intelligence, but very limited creativity, very limited adaptability. Um, so uh, the human brain is something to marvel, and, and we've got a long way to, to match the breadth of its abilities. But when we pick some narrow-focused tasks, uh, like the ones I just mentioned, like um, being able to uh, read an X-ray and, and see uh, whether someone's got uh, pneumonia or, or being able to diagnose a blood disease or, or being able to uh, answer a Jeopardy general knowledge question or play a game of Go or chess, uh, narrow-focused tasks that are well-defined, we can often get a computer to do those very well. Um, and uh, often the case is, as soon as we can get a computer to do it, approaching level humans, computers can do it way, way better than humans. And so, for example, now playing playing the ancient Chinese strategy game of Go, uh, humans just have no chance. The, the Chinese who invented the Go call call the AlphaGo, the program that, that beat their world champion, a Go god. It's now playing sublime Go, making moves that humans have never seen in 2,000 years of playing the game of Go. Um, so, so there's a lot we can do, but there's still um, 50, 100, or even more years before uh, machines will match humans in all their abilities. Uh, you just mentioned uh, chess playing artificial intelligence and Go playing artificial intelligence, and you discussed artificial intelligence uh, beating humans and performing better than humans uh, in these games. How big these milestones were in the development of artificial intelligence? They were certainly milestones when we were able to beat humans at the game of chess. That was back in 20 years ago, in fact, 1997, when Gary Kasparov, the, uh, the best chess player, the world champion at the time, was beaten by IBM's Deep Blue in a in a million dollar match. Um, and then most recently, just a year or two back, we had uh, Lisa Dola, uh, the one of the best players of, of the ancient Chinese game of Go, being beaten by AlphaGo, DeepMind, Google's company that uh, wrote a program that could play. Those were, these were certainly landmark moments. They're, they're moments in time where we can see significant progress being made uh, and um, it, 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 they were perhaps uh, certainly not as uh, as revolutionary as I, I think the Google's PR department would like you to believe. Actually, a lot of what was built into AlphaGo was actually quite old technology, and the the algorithms at the heart of AlphaGo um, were it's a synthesis of, of um, and deep learning and um, to to actually work out whether a, 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 a move was a, a good-looking move or not, um, and this idea of Monte Carlo tree search, which is a way of, of exploring the so-called game tree, of, of seeing, well, if I make this move, um, what move can you make, and what will be a good reply to that, making these sorts of exploring, uh, unfolding the game in some way. So actually, it was quite, in some sense, it wasn't really new technology, although it was a wonderful piece of engineering, and a huge example of how, if you throw a lot more resources at the problem, that you're going to make some progress. I mean, they, it's worth pointing out that, um, you know, how, how can you write a program that can actually beat a world champion? In some sense, uh, we don't know how to play Go better than the world champion. If we did, we would be ourselves a world champion. Um, so the way that we get a program to, to beat a world champion at a game like Go or chess is, is by giving the program an ability to learn. And just like a lot of your intelligence is the things that you learned, you learned how to read, to write, to do maths, to play chess, to play Go. We teach a program to learn how to do things. And it plays, the good thing about, about games is you can play yourself. So AlphaGo played itself millions of times, in fact. And, and every time, you know, one side of the, uh, would win and one side would lose. And then you try to say, well, let's do more of those winning moves and less of those losing moves. And it, it got better slowly, very slowly over time. Um, so to eventually it was better than any human and now way, way better than humans. But it's worth pointing out that that's by a lot of um, perseverance. If, if you started playing Go the moment you were born and that was the only thing you did the whole of your life, you would never play that number of games of Go. In fact, it would take hundreds of people to be able to play simultaneously uh, Go all of their lives. 
to be able to play that number of games ago. So AlphaGo has got to be really good because it actually saw more Go than a human could in a lifetime of playing Go. Um, and in fact, it's you know actually a very slow learner. But because it's a computer, it, of course, it can it can play at superhuman speeds, and it can play itself. Actually, multiple copies of itself will play at the same time, um, and so it it can just um, see more Go, and it got to be better because it saw more Go than humans possibly could. Um, and that's actually a, a, a good example to show how we make progress is actually where we have lots of data these days. And uh, in, ga- in games like Go, it's easy to, to generate lots of data. You mentioned uh, a few moments ago that uh, it is important that we get to that point where we have artificial general intelligence. Now, the applications that use artificial intelligence these days, uh, most of these applications focus on few tasks and most of these applications aim uh, at a narrow set of objectives. These applications are designed to do few particular tasks. So, how far we are from the goal of developing artificial general intelligence? We've made very little progress towards the idea of artificial general intelligence, the, the idea that we'll build machines that can match the full capabilities, the full breadth of capabilities of the human brain. We've only made uh, progress on, on artificial narrow intelligence to doing individual specific narrow tasks. And it's, it's not clear um, how we're going to make um, that progress. Um, it's not clear... Um, you know, we're missing many important things. We're missing, you know, human, uh, humans have uh, lots of common sense knowledge. The computers have, have almost no idea of common sense knowledge. If I uh, pick up a glass of water and I let go of it, um, anyone will know that it's going to you know, head towards the earth very rapidly and then it hits the ground. Um, the water's going to go everywhere. Maybe the glass is going to break. Uh, that sort of um, common sense knowledge that we use to navigate the world and do things in the world Machines just don't have. Um, the, you know, no computer on the planet today all knows what happens when you let go of the glass unless you actually literally tell it in advance what's, all, what's going to exactly happen. And no computer has the common sense knowledge to know that that's going to happen. Um, another area in which we've made very limited progress is in understanding language. Um, computers can do remarkable things with languages today. You can translate um, almost any pair of languages, English into Mandarin. But the computer has no understanding, really, of the language it's, tra- it's translating. If you, if you give Google Translate the sentence, he was pregnant, it will happily translate he was pregnant into French or Mandarin or any other language. And it won't understand there's something deeply fundamental troubling by the sentence he was pregnant, that men don't typically get to be pregnant. It's understanding the sentence very much at the word level, without understanding any, anything behind the real meaning. Um, and it's not clear you know, how we're going to make good progress on that problem. And, um, and, um, and, and therefore, we've still got a huge distance to go um, before we'll actually build if we do artificial general intelligence, I mean, uh, I should point out there's, there's, uh, I did a survey of my colleagues and 8% of them said we would never build artificial general intelligence. Humans, uh, machines would never fully match humans in their abilities. Uh, but having said that, of course, 92% said that we would. Um, and I think the interesting thing about, about that survey was that it wasn't, none of them said it was going to take 10 years. None of them said it was going to take a thousand years. Most of them said it was going to be somewhere in the in, in the next fifty or hundred or maybe two hundred years. But um, so it's something that could happen in in our lifetimes. It's something that's probably likely to happen in the lifetimes of our our children. Um, but it's not a thousand years away. In one of your articles, uh, you outline a number of ways uh, society will change uh, by twenty fifty. Uh, due to the developments in the field of uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, can you share uh, some of these uh, with us? I, I think it's very important to think about how technology is going to change our lives. And this is a technology that has the potential to make great changes to our lives. But also to, to remember that whilst technology changes society, society gets also to change technology. And it's not that the future is already fixed. And I can, I can give you some, some of my predictions about where we might be about 2050, but this is all about making the right choices and that 
technologies will improve some aspects of our lives and some technologies will also uh, hurt some aspects of our lives. And it's about thinking through and deciding where it will. I mean, so the most obvious place perhaps it's going, we're going to see in the next decade is in uh, in vehicles. Autonomous vehicles are going to start invading our lives. And um, I like to point out to people that um, the world is going to look remarkably different by 2050. From 2050, we'll look back at the year 2000 and say, oh, people drove cars back then. I mean, that's that sounds so old-fashioned because people don't drive cars anymore. Um, and that will transfer, just like the, the, the automobile defined the modern city, the autonomous automobile will completely redefine the modern city. We won't need to, I mean, if you look out on the streets today, there's cars parked on a third of the roads uh, waiting for their owners to do to finish whatever they're, do, they're doing so that they can go on to their next car. Well, that will stop because cars won't have to park. They could go off and do useful things. They don't have to wait for you. They can, they can go and be useful and productive. And you know, most of the time, 95% of the time, you own a car, it's sitting there slowly rusting, waiting for you. Well, that won't have, have to happen. It can go off and be a Uber taxi or go and pick up your kids or do other useful things for you. So there's, um, that's going to change the world. And I like to give an analogy for people to understand how different the world's going to look is to say, well, if you go to 1950 and you look around the streets of Dublin, it would look like today there'll be cars and buses and cyclists and the street would look much different than it does today. But if you go from 1950 back to 1900, the streets of Dublin would look very different. It would be horse and carts. Most people were were, were driving around with, with horses and carts back then. Um, and equally, I think that the distance between 2000 and 2050 will look equally distant. Um, and it will transform many aspects of our lives. It's, I mean, it's easy to think of the, the primary effects, which is that none of us will have to waste time driving. We can be sitting in the car, answering emails, watching movies, or doing whatever we want. But it's also the secondary effects that, um, well, that gives mobility to people who don't have mobility today, the very young who are not able to drive, the very elderly who are, again, not able to drive, the, the handicapped, um, it, it will change the price of transportation because um, you know, the cost of a, a taxi or an Uber these days is dominated by the cost of the person driving it. Um, and so the cost of, of transportation uh, will, will plummet. Uh, taxes will be the prices of, of buses. Um, and the profound consequences that that will have on, on how we organize our cities, how we organize our lives, are going to be quite immense. In this process of developing artificial general intelligence uh, and creating common sense uh, in machines, a number of researchers are focusing on the working of human brain. Uh, It seems uh, they are trying to understand how does human brain learn, how does it function, and the objective is to try to replicate these functions in machines uh, to create better artificial intelligence, uh, to create um, uh, artificial general intelligence. Uh, Do you have a view on this approach of uh, developing better uh, artificial intelligence? Yes. One way to try and build smarter artificial intelligence would be, of course, to, to look to nature, to look at our own human brain and to try and and, and recreate some of the structures that we know that create intelligence because the one existence proof we have for intelligence is our giant human brain. But that may not be the best or necessarily the easiest way to build artificial intelligence. And an analogy I like to give to people is flight. Uh, we didn't build human flight by, by watching nature and um, trying to copy the birds. Uh, if, if we did, um, I doubt we would be flying across the planet um, you know, we found a different engineering solution to the same problem, which was how do you get heavier-than-air objects to move through the air in a sustainable way? Uh, we, we came at it not by flapping wings, um, and we don't still understand weather, uh, feathers and wings that well today, even so. We came at it with a fixed wing with um, you know, uh, a very powerful engine, uh, which is arguably a better engineering solution than the one nature ever found um, and has allowed us to to, to develop low-cost flying, um, which we will probably still be standing at the end of the runway, trying to flap our arms uh, vainly if we'd gone at it by trying to copy nature. So, uh, But 
Underneath, of course, it's the same scientific principles. It's the same Napier-Stokes equation that govern fixed wings in aeroplanes as govern the flapping wings in birds and insects. Um, so there are some general principles that we had to un uncover, but it, uh, nature doesn't necessarily find the best or the only way to, to solve a particular problems. So um, I suspect with, with AI, we'll come at it uh, from a different direction, and there's certainly um, the computers we have today have properties that make them, in some sense, um, different and better than the humans. They, um, our human brain is limited in its memory. Uh, computers have no such need for limits. We, uh, you know, our human brain has to fit within our skull that's limited by the size of the birth canal. It has to run on 20 watts of power. And those are limits that um, machines, computers, don't have to have um, equally. Uh, our human brains forget things. Um, we don't have to, uh, computers never have to forget things. And so they have some characteristics which suggest that they could be much more capable than humans um, and, and that would make them actually much more uh, useful for building intelligence. Well, this nicely brings us uh, to my next uh, question. The title of your new book is 2062, The World That AI Made. My question is, why 2062? It's an excellent question why my book's called 2062. Uh, th there are three answers to the question. Uh, the first is a scientific answer, which is when I surveyed three of my, 300 of my colleagues, that was the average age at which they expected machines would match humans. 50% um, of them said before 2062, 50% said after. Of course, the there was a huge amount of uncertainty in their answers, but it's of that sort of scale, 50 to 100 years maybe. Um, of course, the, that wasn't the arithmetic mean, the arithmetic average, because as, as I mentioned earlier, 8% said never. So the arithmetic average uh, was, of course, also never any average that includes in, in, in infinity is itself infinity. Um, but the median answer, 50% said before, 50% said after 2062. Uh, um, I, I would treat the number with a, with, with a certain amount of uh, large error bars around the number. It's not going to happen on the 3rd of June 2062. We have no, no idea to you know, the position. But it seemed you know, quite a, a nice way to, to title the book. Um, so that was the first answer. The second answer is that when I wrote my first book, I was as a scientist, I was quite just surprised to discover that I didn't get to choose the title of the book. And um, my publisher made it clear that they knew what would be a commercially successful title and that, that they were very keen that the book was successful. So they were very insistent that they chose the title. Um, and um, so when I wrote my, this, this was my second book, uh, I thought, well, I'm going to come up with a title. They can't change. And then they're going to come back to me and say, oh, we don't like 2062. How about 2061 or 2063? So, um, so I succeeded in that ambition. They actually did choose, did accept my title this time. Uh, and the third answer is uh, is a, quite a spooky answer, which is that when I finished writing the book, I was explaining to my daughter what the book was about. And it, the book was at the publishers then, and I was saying, well, it's about the world that uh, you're going to inherit. And then I did the maths, and I worked out that in 2062, she would be exactly my age to the year. Um, so it's very much the world that our children are going to inherit. Thank you very much uh, for giving us these uh, very interesting details uh, about the title uh, of uh, your book. My next question is, does your book suggest that 2062 is the year when artificial intelligence will reach human level? I, I think we will uh, reach human level intelligence. I, I think it will be um, in the way that, it, that we've done many other things, which is by our own ingenuity and sweat. I'm, I'm not a believer, like many of my colleagues, in this idea of the singularity, that at some point that we'll build machines that are so smart that they can redesign themselves, and then they'll, this will be some sort of tipping point, some sort of snowballing effect, where, where the machines, those machines can now redesign themselves, those machines will be slightly smarter, so they can redesign themselves again, and we wake up and overnight or very quickly machines become super intelligent. Uh, there are lots of technical reasons. Actually, I go into a dozen reasons in the book as to 
why I think that might well, probably won't happen. It doesn't violate any laws of physics, so we can't say it's impossible in any scientific sense. We have no reason to suppose it's impossible, but I suspect um, we will build machines that were smarter than us, and probably they've got a number of characteristics that I mentioned earlier that mean that they'll probably be even smarter than us. They won't forget things, they'll have more memory, they'll be able to work faster than us. Lots of reasons to suppose that they have capabilities that make them better than the human brain. Um, so I do think, actually, not only will we'll be able to build machines that are smarter than us, but we will eventually be able to build machines that are much smarter than us. And we already can see that if we pick narrow tasks like playing Go or chess or reading x-rays, that we can get humans to do those narrow tasks better than humans. So if we glue all those things together, then we will eventually build machines that are that are in some areas as capable as humans and other areas are more capable than humans. And so I think we will get there. And it will take, uh, I'm a little more pessimistic than my, many of my colleagues. I think it will take about 100 years. But there's a huge amount of uncertainty. But it's, you know, I think it's highly likely in, in, in our children's lifetime. And if I'm lucky, maybe I still might be around to see it myself. But I suspect it's probably more likely to be seen by our children than by us. You touched upon the concept of uh, singularity uh, a few moments ago. Uh, a number of researchers in the field of artificial intelligence uh, talk about this moment of uh, technological singularity when machines will become more intelligent uh, than humans. And some researchers describe this moment as a point in time when machines will take over our lives and perhaps our planet. You have a different view on singularity and you have discussed this in detail uh, in your book. Uh, talk to us about your view uh, on singularity. Sure. So it's worth mentioning that the majority of people are most vocal about the technological singularity. People like Ray Kurzweil and Nick Bostrom aren't AI researchers. And actually, if you ask, as I have done, you ask most of my colleagues, people who have tried to build intelligent machines, um, we're much more skeptical. We're actually, we know how difficult it is to put even a, a small amount of intelligence into a machine. Um, so we're much more skeptical about, about the realistic idea that it's going to happen magically in this way. It's not clear to me why it is passing human-level intelligence is the critical point. There, there, there could well be some sort of tipping point, some, some level of intelligence, but it seems to me terribly conceited to think that that is human-level intelligence. I mean, first of all, it's not clear to me what is human-level intelligence. If I get a room full of people together, they have many different levels of intelligence. Be some people are smarter than others. So what level of intelligence is it passing? Is it passing the most intelligent person who's alive today, the most intelligent person who's ever been alive, the most intelligent person who could ever be alive? It's not clear what, what level of intelligence we exactly have to pass. It's not Intelligence isn't, of course, a single number. Um, intelligence is a, a very multi-dimensional thing, so it's not clear what it means to be passing. Um, these arguments sort of make it rather simplistic, which is you've just got to pass a simple you know, number. I mean, IQ is some, some sort of measure of intelligence, although if, uh, most psychologists will caution you that it's you know, a, a very imprecise measure. It, it's built in lots of cultural and other factors that, uh, that aren't really anything to do with intelligence. And, you know, IQ measures doesn't really measure intelligence. It measures IQ um, <laughs> in a rather circular way. Um, so, so it's not clear to me um, what you've really got to pass. Um, and it may be that there is some level of intelligence machines that would be able to redefine themselves, but that that could be way, way above human-level intelligence. I mean, it's probably not less than human-level intelligence because if it was, we would probably have um, passed it already or we would have built machines that could ease, bootstrap themselves up from that point. So it's, it's unlikely, it seems, that it's going to be significantly below human-level intelligence. Um, but it's, it could well be so way, way beyond human-level intelligence that we will never be smart enough to build machines that have that level of intelligence ourselves. And so we could never get there. Um, and that, that's, I think that's as, as plausible as thinking that we, it would, we would get there. Um, so uh, it's not clear to me that this is inevitable. Um, but nevertheless, machines do have lots of advantages over, over, over our biological brains. But I think what means that eventually we will build machines with, with greater intelligence than humans. And that's going to have 
interesting and profound, important consequences for the world we live in and the society um, that we have. A number of researchers uh, who agree uh, with this notion of uh, technological singularity uh, suggest that uh, after uh, this moment uh, of singularity, uh, everything will change uh, and the course of uh, human civilization uh, and perhaps our destiny uh, will change. Yes, I mean, there's also some other factors that we've, we, we haven't really mentioned, which is that um, we build machines today that have no sentience or no consciousness, no desires of their own. Machines do only what we tell them to do, and that's actually often the problem. We haven't thought carefully through what we tell them to do, and, and we, when, when they do them, you know, anyone who's had the, has the pleasure to program a computer knows how literal they are. They do literally what you tell them to do, and then you, then you hit your forehead and think, oh, that's it's such a stubborn device doing exactly what I told it to do, and I hadn't really worked out what that was. Uh, so we don't have no idea if we're ever going to build machines that actually have any goals of their own, any consciousness, uh, any ability to any free will. Um, it's not clear whether we will, um, you know, whether that's something that's restricted to biology or that's something that we could build in silicon. And that's you know, one reason why artificial intelligence is uh, in a, such a fascinating and profound subject because actually it addresses, you know, one of the biggest scientific unknowns we know, which is, you know, what is what is our consciousness? Is it that something that we build in machines or is that something that really is limited to our biological brains? I mean, obviously, it's not limited to our biological brains because we believe that other animals have uh, levels of consciousness. Maybe they're not as conscious as us, but certainly, um, you know, our, our, our dogs and, and the apes and things seem to be aware of their existence. You hold up a mirror, they can actually they have a theory of minds. They understand that that's them in the mirror. And, and other animals have lesser degrees of, of consciousness, right, right down to, you know, maybe an ant is particularly conscious of its environment. Um, so consciousness seems to be connected with the complexity of the brain. Um, the more complex the brain, the bigger the animal, the bigger its brain, the more consciousness it seems to have. But um, So may, maybe we will, when we build complex enough computers, they will maybe become conscious themselves. We don't know. It's, a, it's going to be one of the most... Uh, interesting, profound discoveries of the next hundred or so years when we build smarter and smarter machines, if we ever build anything in them that is uh, that is consciousness. Of course, it's going to be really hard for us to know because we don't know what consciousness is. We have no device for measuring consciousness. We, have, um, we don't really know what it is in our own brains. I mean, we think it happens in our own brains, but um, I have a lot of respect for philosophers like Daniel Dennett, who, who would argue that consciousness is actually really pretty much a figment of our imagination. Our brains are very good at inventing things, and they invent this 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 idea, this feeling that we're aware of our surroundings, a very good device for us to, to not hurt ourselves and to act in social ways and to behave in societies. Uh, um, but... You know, for, for Daniel Dennett, it really is just a figment of our minds. It's a, it's a, it's a, a belief that we've created, and it's not actually uh, anything special. It's not some sort of new uh, phenomenon. It's just an artifact of uh, our brains. In your book, 2062, The World That AI Made, you talk about homo digitalis. My question is, are you suggesting emergence of an entirely new species or is this about a digital evolution of uh, Homo sapiens? Yeah, so I am suggesting that we will evolve. Uh, technology has, has changed us. I mean, I, I use uh, spectacles and that's a piece of technology that allows me to perceive the world uh, better than I, I could with my with my. Uh, fuzzy eyes, um, and increasingly we are outsourcing parts of our thinking to machines. No one remembers how to do a subtraction these days. No one remembers telephone numbers anymore. Um, soon no one's going to know how to map read anymore because our devices will do that. And, uh, and increasingly we will be living, so it won't be just that we're outsourcing things that we used to do with our brains to machines. Increasingly, we will be living in those cyber worlds that we are, and the distinction between 
the real world and the cyber world will become more and more distinct and the distinction between us and the machines will be more and more more and more indistinct as to as to um, you know where we stop and where our memories are those the memories of the machines um, and so um, we will change ourselves just like uh, we changed ourselves when we stood up and started walking around and uh, and um, became an upright species. Uh, the digital lives that we have and the digital outsourcing of our minds will change in a profound way who we are and what we are. Um, and it will be it will be pretty unrecognizable to the homo sapiens of the 20th and the 19th centuries. Staying with the, this concept of uh, homo digitalis uh, that you discuss in your book, uh, is this about homo sapiens uh, surrounded by new intelligent technologies or uh, is this more than that? Uh, are you suggesting uh, human machine interfaces that may lead to fundamental changes in our bodies, in our brains and perhaps in our anatomy? I'm not so convinced that we're actually going to merge ourselves physically, electronically with the machines. Um, there's certainly, I mean, there, there are people like Elon Musk who, who actually, you know, has set up a company to build this neural lace. Now, I think, um, you know, there's some profound, and there's actually a whole section of my book which goes into um, how actually I think this isn't an answer that actually is technically quite a challenge. It's um, the we don't have large parts of our brain unused um, that we could actually connect new interfaces to. I mean, it's worth pointing out about a third, a quarter or a third of our brain is used to process the information that comes from our eyes. Um, so uh, it's not clear to me um, that we actually have space in our brains for a new high-speed interface. And it's not clear to me that actually that's the thing that's holding back our brains. I mean, that's Elon Musk's idea is that is that we're held back by the, the speed of the interface to our brains. And if we could have a high-speed interface directly into our brains, then, then we would be so much more capable. Well, we already have high-speed interface, interface to our brains. It's called our eyes, and we already use a lot of our brain just to process the information. But in, in the interesting thing is we don't get really a lot of, of um, information um, as we think, out of our eyes. I mean, if, you, if I say to you, if you spend the next hour watching a movie or you spend the next hour reading a book, what do you learn more from? You learn more from the reading the book than from the movie. Um, and it's the abstractions, the generalization. Um, it's actually taking the information and condensing it down into uh, a more digestible form that is the thing that, that is a, a built into a, our in intelligence. Um, so it's not clear to me that building more interfaces or faster interfaces into our brains is going to actually transform our intelligence. Um, I, actually, I think uh, we're, how it's going to change us is the fact that we're going to be surrounded by these digital intelligences, and some of them may well be much, much smarter than us, and that's going to change the way we do things and the way we make decisions, and increasingly we're going to be outsourcing those decisions to those machines, and we would be doing the things, maybe, you know, the things like being more creative and focusing on our emotional intelligence and our social intelligence things. The machines are somewhat limited at today and maybe for, for significant amounts of time moving forward. So that will change quite profoundly the way we live and the way we interact with each other. Uh, one thing that uh, struck me when I looked at the book was the titles of the chapters. The book is organized uh, as chapters with names as the end of something. Uh, for example, uh, the end of us, uh, the end of work, uh, the end of war, the end of human values, the end of equality. What is the thinking behind this approach? Looking at uh, the list of the names of chapters in your book, uh, it's a bit worrying. However, on another level, this seems a very interesting approach uh, to make a point. <laughs> yes, uh, I mean, when you summarize the book, you know, the chapters are titled The End of Consciousness, The End of Work, The End of, uh, the end of Privacy, The, <laughs> the End of uh, Equality. You, you, it sounds a bit depressing. It sounds a, 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 bit, a bit of uh, bad news. But, but actually, it's about 
uh, how these aspects of our society and our lives are going to change in, in a pretty profound way. And it's the, the end is also, of course, the beginning of something new. And it's about saying, well, if we're going to have a, a new type of, of work, uh, if the nature of our economy changes because the robots can start to, taking the sweat, how do we make sure that that's the, the sort of world that we want it to be in, in which all of us share the benefits? Um, if, um, if we have machines that can, you know, as we start starting to see, that, that, um, that can process vast amounts of information, that, that can scan all the faces in a country in a, in a second, as the China now has, um, how is that going to change the nature of our privacy? What sort of privacy do we want to ensure that we have? Um, so it's about making these questions about, well, the, f the future is not yet fixed. The future is about making right choices about how we use this technology to improve the quality of our lives and not to, not to hurt the quality of our lives. Um, so it's, the, the book is about trying to encourage the conversation that I think all of society should have, not just technologists like myself, but, but the whole of society about thinking about, well, what sort of world do we want our children to inherit? Um, and let's make some choices about using the technology and, and regulating the technology um, to make sure it's that sort of world. We have a good historical example, actually, which is the Industrial Revolution. When that, that changed our world a hundred or so years ago in a profound way. Um, and we've come out of the Industrial Revolution much better. Quality of life has improved significantly um, in a country like Ireland. Life expectancy has almost doubled. Um, poverty has reduced dramatically. Um, child mortality has is, um, is, is, um, dropped uh, precipitously. Um, we've come out of uh, that revolution living much better lives than we did. But that didn't happen by without making some significant structural changes to our world. We introduced unions to protect the rights of the workers from the owners of manufacturing. We introduced um, labor laws. We introduced the welfare state um, to support people when they were uh, out of work. We introduced pensions so that people could retire and enjoy the rest of their lives. Uh, we made some pretty profound changes to our society so everyone shared the benefits. Um, and there was actually, sadly, you know, 50 years of pain as we went through that transformation before the quality of people's lives actually did improve and now improved dramatically. And I, and I do think that that's actually probably a good analogy for today, that we're going through and another significant period of change. The nature of work, again, is changing in a, in a very profound way. Um, and there will be some pain and there will be quite a bit of disruption to, to people's lives. Um, yeah, at the end of it, hopefully, we'll come out of it with much better quality lives and the machines will be taking the sweat and we can sit back and enjoy the finer things in life. Um, but that requires us to make some, some important choices um, about how the technology is used and how we support people through these changes. How do we ensure that people get uh, reskilled for the new jobs? How do we ensure um, that when, when, um, when technology comes along, people have the right skills for those jobs? Well, uh, this leads us to my next uh, question. Uh, you wrote a letter uh, to the United Nations. Uh, this letter was endorsed uh, by a number of your colleagues and by a number of uh, researchers. You suggest in this letter that we must think now and we must discuss now uh, various developments uh, in the field of artificial intelligence. Uh, you use a term stupid AI and you suggest that we should be careful that there is no stupid AI uh, that may harm us. Uh, talk to us about this letter and the issues that you have raised uh, in this letter. Yes, I mean, this, this is discussed in my book under the chapter entitled The End of War, which is about how warfare is going to be changed in a, in a dramatic way by artificial intelligence. And I've become pretty much an accidental activist in, in doing this. I feel this is something that really does keep me awake at night. And uh, it often goes under the title, people talk about killer robots. The problem with talking about killer robots is that gives people the wrong idea. People start immediately to think of 
Terminator and, and super intelligent robots that are going to take over the planet. And that's not what we're worried about, and that's not the technology we're worried about. It's actually much simpler technologies that are actually almost already here. Um, your listeners will have you know, seen video of, of drones flying above the skies of Afghanistan or Iraq, Predator drones, Reaper drones. Uh, those are still semi-autonomous. There's still a human in the loop. The, 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 the drone these days actually flies itself most most of the time on its own. It just you know, just give it coordinates of where to go. But there's still a human in the loop who's actually got a finger finger on the trigger that will actually make the final decision to set off its uh, Hellfire missiles. But it's a small technical leap to remove the human and replace it with some algorithms. Have some algorithms that recognise people on the ground and make the decision. Um, to, to fire the missile or not. That is obviously, from a military perspective, from an operational perspective, very attractive. The weak link in a drone is the radio link. In fact, there have been drones that have been brought down in, in Iraq um, by ISIS, by, by, by jamming the radar link. Um, and so if you can, make the, if you can remove that, that radio link, uh, you make the weapon you know, much more robust, uh, much more useful. But of course, now you're giving the decision to a machine as to who lives and who dies. Machines don't have the moral capability to make these sorts of decisions. They certainly, um, we would certainly struggle today to, to actually make them as, as accurate as humans. They would be making many, many mistakes. And there, and there are lots of profound questions that this then raises. It would be crossing a, a moral red line to actually hand over these sorts of decisions for the first time. To machines, and it would change completely the, the character of war. It would change the speed, uh, ultimately the accuracy, and certainly the duration of warfare. And it has been called a third revolution of warfare. The first revolution being the invention of, of gunpowder by the Chinese. Uh, the second revolution being the invention of nuclear bombs. These were both step changes in the speed, uh, the, the efficiency with which you could kill the other side. This would be another step change. Now, you could do what previously took an army of people to do with a thousand drones and one programmer. Um, these would be weapons, ultimately, of mass destruction. And we have uh, occasionally decided that some technologies uh, should not be used for war. We've decided um, to ban relatively successfully chemical weapons, biological weapons. Even today, nuclear weapons have been technically banned. And, and hopefully the world will become a safer and safer place as we, we manage to disarm ourselves of this, of this terribly destructive technology. Uh, so I, I'm hopeful, um, like many of my colleagues are, that this is a technology that we will decide is not to be used to prosecute war. And there's plenty of really good things that could be used to, to save lives, even in the military setting. Um, I, I like to point out to people that um, you know, clearing a minefield, perfect job for a robot. If it goes wrong, you blow up the robot, everyone gets to live. Um, there's plenty of other Good examples, getting supplies into contested territory. Um, very, lots of good examples. Even even using it to to actually disable weapons at the last minute when they realise that it's not a military convoy but actually a, a medical convoy that the, that the weapon is about to destroy. Um, so there's plenty of good things you can uh, decisions you can give to machines that would actually make warfare a better place. And, and but but actually changing the character of war by giving machines the right to, to fight will take us to a very terrible place. Um, and it will enter, ultimately end up looking pretty much like those Hollywood movies in 50 or 100 years' time. Um, but we do get a choice as to whether we, we use this technology to fight war or not. In fact, um, at the moment, the United Nations is discussing this topic. 28 nations have called for a preemptive ban. Um, there's, there's still, that's still not a majority of nations. We've got to, uh, we've got to get up into the hundreds to have a majority of nations. But uh, I'm hopeful that we will actually, this campaign will be successful um, to decide like chemical weapons and like biological weapons and like various other technologies like blinding lasers and cluster munitions uh, that all have been successfully banned by the United Nations that will decide that this is a technology not to be used to fight war, but to make the world a better place. Uh, you highlight uh, in your presentations and in your publications that artificial intelligence is moral neutral and that is why it is important that we keep monitoring uh, which direction it takes. However, 
Some researchers suggest that uh, we can introduce morality in artificial intelligence and we can introduce uh, morality in the underpinning algorithms. Uh, what is uh, your take on that? Uh, machines are not morally accountable for anything. They're machines. They have no, uh, no consciousness to be able to be making these sorts of decisions and they certainly... They don't suffer pain. They can't be punished. They can't be held accountable in any way. Um, you know, at the end of the day, algorithms are just bits of mathematics. But they do capture the values of the people who wrote them. Um, and in that sense, machines do have morals. And, they, 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 um, and it's not, um, machines are not unbiased. It's not um, as, as some people in Silicon Valley have, have tried to leave us. The machines are you know, less biased than humans. Machines can be just as biased, in fact, more biased than humans. And in fact, they're worse than humans in the sense that uh, we can't ask them for explanations. Many of them are just black boxes and they can't explain themselves like humans can. But we are um, handing over decisions to machines and we have to think very carefully about the sorts of values that those machines are uh, capturing. And, it, and people talk about you know, AI and ethics, and I say, actually, no, it's nothing to do with AI, really. Um, getting machines to make or to offer decisions, it doesn't actually uh, require uh, any ethical, any ethics of, of any great sort. It's about autonomy, the fact that actually those machines are making decisions and acting on them. Um, you know, if, if a machine just spits out a decision or spits, spits out a piece of a device, we can choose to follow that device or not. But it's the fact that machines then are following through. Um, and we see this in two areas. One that we just talked about, which is autonomous weapons. It's the, the fact that we're making the weapons autonomous that's the problem. In fact, the smarter they are, the less mistakes hopefully they'll be making. And the other area that we see it a lot in is, uh, of course, autonomous vehicles. And again, it's the fact that we're giving machines, in this case, cars and trucks, autonomy is the problem. And um, at the moment, they're not actually smart enough um, to be making the rights of decisions. And that's why we've already seen a number of accidents where autonomous cars have killed people. Um, and so uh, I like to you know, point out to people, it's not the AI that's the troubling thing here, it's the autonomy that we're giving machines the ability to act autonomously in our world, and they may be making decisions and acting in ways that, that causes people harm. And that's when we start to worry about exactly what their actions are and who's responsible for the any harms that they might cause. Uh, and what, you know, the one thing that is not responsible, of course, ultimately is a machine, because it, it cannot be held responsible. It is a machine. It can't be punished. Um, and so it must be the people who built it and designed it and turned it on who must share the responsibility for its actions. Uh, you touched upon the issue of uh, privacy a few moments ago. This is a very important topic. Uh, this is a very important issue. Uh, can you discuss this uh, in more details as you discuss this in the chapter, The End of uh, Privacy? Yes. Well, of course, um, you know, literature is full of, of, of wonderful stories that tell us about where we might end up. Um, you know, George Orwell, uh, 1984, books like this, uh, paint a, you know, a, a very worrying future that we could end up in if we're not careful. Um, George Orwell got one thing wrong. Uh, he had people watching, you know, Big Brother watching you. Actually, how we're seeing it unfolding today, it's not people watching people, it's computers watching people. Um, and that has profound risk we're seeing at the moment. It's, and it's not just, uh, the other thing he got wrong is it's not just uh, government watching people. We're increasingly seeing corporations watching people. And corporations are even less accountable than governments, so certainly our democratic governments, because they don't have to be elected. Um, and uh, the only way that you can watch a nation is with computers. You know, we've, well, East Germany, I think, was demonstrated limits of how you get people watching other people. But, but we're discovering how easy it is these days um, for, 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 for governments and for corporations to watch people uh, on scale. And you can do that on a planet-wide scale with computers. And certainly people should have been very shocked by what people like Snowden revealed about the extent that we are being watched. And, and people are certainly starting to realize how also corporations like Facebook and Google are, are taking all that digital information about us and the uses, the misuses that that information can ha have. So I think we, should, we, we, we're really going through a, 
you know, a very important conversation and people are starting to realize how important this is going to be. Um, and, and it really is going to change the nature of our world. We, we've seen, for example, China now um, rapidly adopting face recognition software. That's artificial intelligence again. Um, they can scan, they have a, a system which is chillingly named Skynet that can scan a billion faces a second. Um, that's, you know, so they can scan the population of China in, 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 a, in a second or so. Uh, and they're using that. Um, they're, they're using that to suppress religious minorities in the provinces. There was an example recently in a rock concert of 60,000 people where they found, they found uh, the face of a, and were able to arrest um, a convicted criminal. Um, now, well, obviously the person was, was a criminal, so you might think there's nothing wrong with that. But that says something, something new about our world, which is previously, if you went out in a crowd of people, you went into a political demonstration, you were anonymous. You could protest anonymously, but now you can't. We can have the technology that allows us to work out who you are. And it's not just in China. I mean, in, in, uh, in many countries now, for example, in Australia, where I live, the government has just decided to make a database of everyone's passport and driving license photograph for the interest of national security. But um, we, you know, that could, you know, there's always mission creep and who might get access to that data. Um, that lets you do things and will change the nature of the world and the nature of the political discourse you have. And it's, it's not just the fact that, that they can see you. It's the fact that you know that they can see you. That changes your, your, uh, your behaviors. The, the thoughts, the fear that you might be watched is enough, actually, to change the world you're in, even if you aren't actually, at that moment in time, being watched. Um, and then just one final aspect of this that I think people ought to also wake up, and which is that many people, as I think have, have perhaps uh, resign themselves to the fact that we've given up our digital privacy, that, uh, you know, the big tech companies know everything about you and, and that's, uh, you know, some sort of Faustian bargain that we've, we've had and we've, 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 we've accepted the price. We get all these, uh, in quotes, free services back and they take all their information about us. And, and maybe that's something, you know, that we're, we're resigned to accepting now. But, we're about to give up not our digital privacy, but our analog privacy. That we're connecting ourselves to devices, Fitbits and smartwatches that measure our analog selves, our, where we are in the world, our blood pressure, our heartbeats, um, the size of our eyeball. Um, and these, these are also analog signals, not digital signals, analog signals about ourselves. Um, and if you look at the terms of Fitbit, they own the data about you. They own your heartbeat. And um, you can lie about your digital preferences. You can hide behind um, uh, firewalls and things like this. Um, you can pre pretend to be someone else and uh, you can delete all your cookies and things like this. But you can't lie about your, your heartbeat, about your analog self. So this would be an incredible information for marketeers to use and even more incredible information for politicians to use. Imagine if you could tell how the how your constituents, how your how the people in your country respond to your speeches by listening to their heartbeats. Um, so uh, I think we should be very careful about recreating what we did with our digital privacy and giving it away to tech companies or giving it away to the government uh, with our analog self. That there is something that, um, that we would end up in a very um, dystopian world if we discovered that these very sensitive informations, the things that actually you can't, you can't hide your heartbeat, you can't pretend it's something that it isn't, if we gave this away um, and discovered that we were in a world in which this was being uh, used, weaponized against us. This has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, what are your concluding thoughts? Uh, how should we finish? How should we conclude uh, this discussion? I, I always like to end on an upbeat note and remind people that it's despite you know some of the significant challenges that we've just talked about about impacts on privacy, the impact on warfare, the impact that we uh, touched on about how it's going to change work and 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 and, and disrupt our, our lives, the profoundly uh, positive impacts it will also have. It will you know it will actually improve 
uh, personalize uh, our, our healthcare, it will actually, you know, machines. We should be celebrating when robots take over jobs because they were typically inhumane jobs, dirty, dull, difficult jobs that we should never have been getting humans to do. And we should work out how to make sure that those people aren't thrown onto the scrap heap of the unemployment queue and are still you know, gainfully and usefully employed within the world. Um, but we, we should be uh, looking forward to this future. It also because the world faces some absolutely wicked problems today, things like climate change and uh, increasing inequality within our society. There, there are lots of really challenging problems the world faces. And we only have about one hand of cards to play, which is to embrace technology to help us deal with these challenges. The population of the planet is not going to get any smaller and um, we're going to have to use technology to make better use, better, more sustainable use of the planet. And AI is one of those technologies that lets us do this. And so uh, we really have to double down on, on investing in technology and using it to help us go through what I think is going to probably be a, a, you know, a very challenging 50 or 100 years in the history of the planet so that we come out of it uh, like we came out of the Industrial Revolution in a better place. Um, so I, I do like to you know, remind people of, of why we're, uh, embrace why we need to embrace technologies like AI because it really is about our future, making sure that it's going to be a good future. Professor Toby Walsh, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me on. Thank you very much and goodbye. Okay, thanks a lot. Cheers.